Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Jeff Gerth, journalist who spent three decades as an investigative reporter at the New York Times, where he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1999. His new four-part series about U.S. media's Russiagate coverage in the Columbia Journalism Review is called The Press Versus the President. Jeff Gerth, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Aaron. You've written an exhaustive expose of how the U.S. media covered Russiagate, and your findings are not very flattering. Uh, You document a pattern of major U.S. outlets, especially the Washington Post and the New York Times, reporting innuendo about Trump and Russia and then ignoring the countervailing facts, uh, even when those facts emerge publicly that directly contradict what the Post and the Times reported before. Before we get into uh, your findings, I'm just curious to hear more about your journalistic background. As I mentioned, you spent decades at the Times and how you came to write this piece, why you felt this was important to put out there. Sure. Uh, Well, I've been a reporter for a little over 50 years. Started out as a freelance reporter. Now here at the end of my career, I'm I'm a freelance reporter, but the bulk of the time, as you point out, was at the the New York Times. Uh, And then I left the Times in the end of 2005. I spent a couple of years doing a book, and then I worked at ProPublica for nine years. And since then, I've I've been a freelance reporter. The the impetus for the, the project is... Is basically twofold. One, uh, after I left ProPublica, I did a uh, a fellowship with the uh, University of Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, and one of the projects I did there involved dissecting and trying to report out the dossier, the the infamous Steele dossier. And in the course of doing that with with someone else there, uh, I became pretty skeptical about the dossier and was unable to verify much of it, if any of it. And so that, that sort of planted in me some seeds about the, the story itself as it was unfolding quite uh, explosively in 2017 and 2018. Uh, Then after the Mueller report was released in the spring of 2019, I had a, a lunch in New York. I happened to be up there for the birth of my first grandson. And the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review and I had lunch. I had done a couple pieces for them in 2017 and and had a good relationship with the the review and with the the editor, Kyle Pope. And so he kind of, as we started talking about it, he, he said, well, so we're thinking maybe we'll do an anatomy of, of what happened in the coverage. And I said, well, I think that might be a good idea. At that point, John Durham had just been named uh, by Attorney General Barr to go back and look at the origins of the investigation. So I told him, perhaps naively, that, well, if you want me to do a coroner's or an autopsy, I'm going to wait for the coroner's report. And by that, I meant the final report by Durham. So that was 
I guess now almost four years ago. And so I waited around for a while. Finally, by 2021, uh, the pandemic had hit and things were kind of slowed down everywhere. And I decided to start doing some serious reporting and doing some interviews and trying to to report out the story, which I was able to do and finish by, uh, you know, pretty much finish it by the mid uh, of 2022. And then there was some editing and various sort of additional reporting I did. Uh, and then, you know, finally landed the piece, not waiting for Durham to issue his report because at that point we just decided we should go with what we got. There were, you know, things that came out in various prosecutions and filings by Durham that, that gave some further insight into the issues that I was interested in. So we decided to go ahead and publish. In the piece, you write about reaching out to dozens of people, uh, reporters and editors. Uh, but to your surprise, you did not hear back from a lot of the figures you reached out to. And many people refused to basically talk about and defend their reporting. Can you uh, speak to us about that? Sure. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it was totally to my surprise because as my friend Lowell Bergman, we've been friends for 50 years he's a former cbs journalist he, he likes to say journalists don't have thin skin they don't have any skin <laughs> so i wasn't totally surprised but i did i did reach out to every major news organization as well as individual reporters especially ones whose names appeared on stories and most of them i didn't exactly come up with the exact tally but mo most of them demurred or either punted me to the public affairs person or just refused to even respond to my emails or phone calls uh, eventually i did interview you know probably 15 or 20 reporters on the record in fact one of my more significant interviews with bob woodward didn't take place until a couple of weeks before the piece came out. But with regards to the major news organizations, whether it were the, the TV networks or the, the Times, the Post, the Journal, uh, none of them made available anybody to sit down with me as a responsible person at the organization and answer questions. I, the flack for the Washington Post did have conversation with me on background. Uh, the Times flack never saw fit to even pick up the phone and call me. In fact, at one point, she wrote an email to my editor early in the project after I had contacted some people at the Times and knew and they knew what I was doing. And, and wondered whether I, in fact, was really doing something for the Columbia Journalism Review. So, and of course, he assured her I was. So, it, in some, the, the media were pretty non-responsive, though, again, you know, 12, 15, 18 or so journalists did, did talk with me, some of whom were quite helpful. Some would only talk on background and but but some did go on the record and i appreciated that but at the end of the day sort of institutionally 
I didn't get a lot of cooperation. And you mentioned interviewing Bob Woodward, the veteran of the Washington Post, very well-known journalist. Uh, he made some waves in his comments to you when he urged new when he urged newsrooms to quote walk down the painful road of introspection. I'm curious to hear from you if you were to try to summarize your findings and identify a pattern in the coverage that you reviewed, especially in the Times and the Post, of how they reported on RussiaGate and the suspicion of a conspiracy between Trump and Russia. How would you summarize the the patterns in the coverage that you scrutinized? Well, first of all, I think the the word pattern that you use is a is a, an appropriate description. People have asked me, well, what's the most sensational thing you found, or what's the most important thing you found? And and my answer is, it's the sum total of all the things that I found that were the most important as opposed to one single bad story or one single you know mistake that was made it's it's really a pattern of either continuing to report the story with the slant of there being this narrative of of cooperation or collusion or some connection between trump's world and and the russians and the the interference that the Russians were doing. In fact, I got an interesting email from a very prominent reporter after the piece came out and they pointed out to me how members of the media had commingled, that was the word they used, the two important strands of the Russia investigation. Those strands being number one, that the Russians had done some sort of interference or influence operation or meddling, whatever phrase you want to use during the 2016 campaign. And the other strand being that there were connections or ties of some sort, links, whatever word you want to use, between certain members of the Trump's universe, including Trump himself, and people in Russia. And those two strands became conflated or commingled for a couple of years. And that that was the predominant sort of connection that was being made. And then when you take each of those strands and look at them in isolation, neither of them are quite as strong as portrayed. And obviously the connection between the two of them you know, was never proven to exist, yet they always sort of surfaced together and in defenses by the news media organizations when they were asked, they would always cite these two things. I believe they're also the foundation of the Pulitzer Prizes and other prizes that were awarded. So I think the the conflation of the two events, as well as the the, the sort of exaggeration, if you will, of, of each of the individual strands um, and, the, and the failure of news organizations, in particular the Times, to report information that went against the narrative that, that existed. Um, one, one of the things that stood out for me was the failure, and of course this is in the piece, was the failure of the Times in January 2018 to report on a, a text that came out from Peter Schrock, 
the supervisory manager of the FBI investigation. And the reason why I, I find it significant that they failed to report on it while other news organizations did was that this was not some anonymous piece of information. It wasn't information that came from some peripheral source who might be, quote, familiar with the investigation. This was the person running the investigation. The investigation had been going on for 10 months. And he was sending a message to a colleague, a text message, which he never could have imagined would become public, but yet it did. And in the message, he said it was sent in mid-May of 2017 as he was debating whether to go to work for Bob Mueller, who had just been named the special counsel. He was hesitant, and the reason he was hesitant was, quote, there's no big there there, unquote. So here, here's the guy at the top of the food chain, 10 months into the investigation, saying privately in a message he could have never imagined would become public that there wasn't much there in this investigation. Yet the Times never thought it was newsworthy to publish it either when it came out in January 2018 or any time subsequent to that. And then in their response to me, when I asked them about this, their answer was, we, we looked into it thoroughly and then we adhered to our editorial standards. So you'll have to ask them what that means, but I don't quite fathom it myself. Mm -hmm. Another example you discuss in your piece uh, has to do with a story in the Times that you say was very influential to fueling the Trump-Russia narrative. It appeared in February 2017, actually, uh, on the uh, today see, six years to today as we're recording this. Uh, this was the headline it, in the it Times. It was a Valentine's Day special, <laughs> and the headline is Trump a Trump campaign aides had repeated contacts with Russian intelligence. And I'll just read the opening graph. Phone records and intercepted calls show that members of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and other Trump associates had repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials in the year before the election, according to four current and former American officials. And as you write, Jeff, in your piece, uh, this was a very important story. It helped fuel the momentum for the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller uh, just uh, shortly afterwards. And it ignited this firestorm that was growing then about a Trump-Russia conspiracy that had you know, previously been set off by the release of the Steele dossier just uh, a few weeks earlier. Uh, now, you point out that this piece has a number of flaws. And you, know, you mentioned before Peter Strzok and how the Times didn't report his text messages about there being no there there when it comes to a Trump-Russia conspiracy. Well, it turned out that later on it was uh, some of Strzok's notes were declassified, and he, it turned out, went through this Times piece and wrote his own notes and basically saying that all of its assertions were not true. And the Times later on acknowledged Strzok's uh, uh, perspective, but they still, to this day, have stood by their reporting, even though also Jim Comey even testified that it wasn't true. So talk to us about uh, this story and what you uncovered about it. Well, you, you did a good job of summarizing its importance and 
and the serious questions surrounding it. In my time at the New York Times and subsequent, I've never seen someone like the head of the FBI go up and testify a story is so so inaccurate or so flawed. I, I've never seen that transpire. And and not only did Comey say that, but he he said that when the story came out, not only did the FBI not know anything about what was being referenced in the story, he went around to the agencies, CIA, NSA, etc., and asked do you know anything about this? Are we missing something? Have we not been informed? And he came back, you know, blank, empty. So it it's a mystery to this day as to where the times, it was of course based on anonymous sources, where it came from and exactly what the people who were passing on, whatever they passed on, were getting their information from. Um, but I think that the interesting thing about the story is two weeks later, the time, well, first of all, I should say for my purposes, it was illuminative that the times that allowed a film documentarian into the newsroom and starting just a few weeks before that, they began filming what was transpiring at the New York Times vis-a-vis -vis Trump and Russia. And finally, it culminated in a four-part documentary called The Fourth Estate, which aired on Showtime in 2018. But for my purposes, it was, it was a goldmine because it allowed you a rare insight into the newsroom and its internal deliberations, which you really never get to see unless you're there yourself. And what I found most interesting, and it's something I think that, that I used as a spine throughout my piece, was you had this dialogue where the one of the reporters said to the editor of the paper, Dean Becquet, they were on telephone at that point because the reporters were in Washington and, and Dean was in New York. And they sort of report, well, here's what the story's going to say. Here's what we found. But the, the reporter says, well, uh, aren't we feeding into a conspiracy here <laughs> with, with what we found? And, and, uh, and the editor, Becquet, did what a good editor does. He asked some good questions and made some suggestions. And the point he was making was, well, so you've, you've uncovered these contacts, phone intercepts, et cetera, but readers gonna wanna know what actually transpired. What was the substance of those conversations or those contacts? And as, as he said on film, they could be innocent or they could be sinister. And as you know, there's a big difference between an innocent conversation and a sinister conversation. And so Dean was telling the reporters that up high in the story before what journalists call a nut graph, which is a summary graph up high in a piece, sort of laying out your findings. Uh, he wanted the, the report to delineate and provide some details so readers could come to their own conclusion about 
Was this something innocent or was this something sinister or something in between? Uh, but the piece never was able to do that. Uh, I think it does have a sentence in there saying that, that their sources didn't provide them with the details of these conversations. Now, I've had several former top editors at a number of papers uh, come to me and say, this was really valuable what you did showing this deliberation. If I were the editor of the paper, I would have said, this is a really interesting tip. You need to go report it out some more before we publish it. But of course, that that didn't happen in this case. And, and the story was published without those kind of details. And two weeks later, the Times revisited this subject. And the folks at the FBI were thinking, again, all reflected in text messages that were later uh, released. They, the folks at the FBI were thinking, well, the Times is going to correct the story they did a couple of weeks earlier and, and get it right. But that didn't happen as, as Peter Strzok texted on March 1st, when the second story came out, uh, they're doubling down on their inaccuracy. <laughs> and not only <laughs> did they double down according to Strzok, but in this story, as you as you read from the first story, they had four sources. By March 1st, two weeks later, they now had six sources. So somehow the the number of sources had increased and they still felt confident. They did have a clarification uh, down in the bottom of the piece that suggested, well, when we said senior Russian officials, we... It's a it's a more complicated concept in Russia. You could be an oligarch and maybe be a Russia a Russian intelligence official or something like that. So they were sort of trying to clarify the first piece, but they didn't really walk away at all uh, from the the findings of the first piece. And I should say that a couple of days after this piece, they did another piece. And in that piece, for the first time, they actually answered the question that Dean Becquet raised just before the publication of the, the problematic February piece. And that is, well, this is quoted from the piece a couple of days later in early March. It, it explained how contacts can be innocent. They can be, you know, political talk or it could be a business related conversation. And so therefore, just because somebody talks with a Russian, it doesn't mean that something nefarious by definition is going on. There could be innocent or less nefarious explanations for those kind of conversations. But that, yeah. But by that then, of course, the damage that, is done. The damage is done because yeah, the initial right. story has gone out. It's right, fueled correct. cable news cycles. Everyone thinks there's something sinister about Trump and Russia. And of course, we have no evidence to begin with that any of these suppo supposed contacts, whoever they were between, ever even happened. Well, look, the the first piece did mention Manafort, and so that Manafort clearly had contacts with Konstantin Kalimnik, and you've written a lot about this, so I don't need to elaborate. Your Your listeners probably know a lot about it, but Again, the nature of that contact and whether it was 
business related or something more nefarious is 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 murky and far from clear. Right. So on the point about Kalimnik, the Times actually tried to use him to vindicate its own story. So in so that initial piece comes out in February 2017. Fast forward to August 2020, the Senate Intelligence Committee comes out with a report and they claim that Konstantin Kalimnik, who is a business associate of Paul Manafort's, is a Russian intelligence officer. Now, the Senate report offers no evidence for this claim, and the report also acknowledges that its investigative powers, as you talk about in your piece too, uh, are far uh, less uh, sweeping than Robert Mueller's, and Robert Mueller never called Kalimnik a Russian spy. But despite that, uh, people in the media who push the Russiagate narrative treat the Senate report as some sort of new smoking gun. And the Times then puts out an article saying that the Senate report confirms the Times prior reporting that Trump aides had repeated sure. contacts with senior Russian intelligence sure. officials. Uh, right. Well, they yeah. act, they actually used the confirm language in 2021 when Kalimnik was sanctioned by the Treasury Department. But But yes, the Times considers the Senate Intelligence Committee report and then the subsequent sanctioning by Biden's Treasury Department as confirmation of their 2004, uh, 2017 piece, the one in February that, that the FBI found so uh, riddled with mistakes. And uh, you also point out that when the Times won an award, uh, along with the Washington Post, for, quote, uncovering connections between Trump officials and well-connected Russians, uh, that when they won the George Polk Award in February 2018, that time story from February 2017 was among the articles that was in the winning uh, prize package. But then shortly afterwards, when the Times and the Post share another award, the Pulitzers, for their reporting on the Russian investigation, the Times did not submit that, that February 2017 story uh, in that uh, submission package. That's that's correct, and I, I spent considerable time trying to get an answer to the question of why it was in one prize package, but just shortly thereafter, the the deadlines for the Polk are a little bit earlier than the Pulitzers. I think the deadline for the Polk Award is around the first of the year, and the deadline for the Pulitzers is late January, and so in that few week time frame. The Times took out the the problematic piece from its prize submissions. Now, the the innocent explanation, which is certainly quite possible, is that the Polk package is larger than the Pulitzer package. I think it may be twelve, and the Pulitzer package is limited to ten articles. So they may have just said, "Well, we got to get rid of a couple pieces, so we're going to get rid of this and that." Uh, but I, as I said, I tried to get an answer and didn't succeed. The uh, reliance on Christopher Steele is another major theme of your reporting, how he was initially treated by the U.S. media as this uh, intrepid sleuth who came across uh, Trump-Russia contacts and just wanted to uh, alert the world. And then it came out slowly that, in fact, the Clinton campaign was secretly paying for his work. And that uh, it took many years for us to confirm this, that the FBI uh, did not have confidence in Steele's claims 
even though anonymous officials were privately feeding U.S. media outlets a much different picture, basically saying that his allegations were bearing out. Uh, talk to us about this episode around Steele. And, and one particular thing I learned from your article is that the Times appeared to admit that they had a relationship with Steele and the firm he was working for, Fusion GPS. Yes. Well, I'll get to that in a second. I mean, first of all, I think there was sort of a schizophrenic attitude, both about Steele and, and the Russia story uh, reflected in, in the media coverage. So before the election in 2016, the media knew about the Steele dossier. Many either had parts of it, all of it, or, or had seen relevant parts of it. And they tried to report out the facts in it and see if they could verify anything. And save for a couple of exceptions, Mike Isakoff at Yahoo and David Korn at Mother Jones, the media didn't bite on the dossier or its contents before the election. So they were pretty skeptical of going with it, even though they considered Steele, the author, and Fusion GPS, the, the sponsor, even though they held them in high regard. Then after the election, everything changed, spurred primarily, if not exclusively, by the fact that the dossier, part of it was briefed to President-elect Trump on January 6, 2017 by FBI Director Comey. And then that soon leaked out to CNN and hours later, BuzzFeed published the dossier in total. And so once that happened, you know, the door was open and the, the skepticism that the press had exhibited before the election was gone for the most part. I mean, some news organizations, including the Times, didn't go as far as some other news organizations, specifically the Post and the Wall Street Journal and ABC, who, who published some stuff from the dossier that later turned out to be incorrect. Um, now, you, you raised the point about the confidentiality agreements that the reporters had. And I think that's a really interesting issue that I drilled down on and discovered actually very late in the game, uh, a mysterious uh, editing deletion by the New York Times in, in this regard. So here you had sources, in this case, Fusion GPS, the, the research firm in Washington, and Christopher Steele, the former MI6 spy in the UK as sources for news organizations. And so not only were the news organizations protecting their identity of this, of who they were getting this information from, but they weren't able to tell their readers anything about the relationship. So what started out as a story about Trump being in bed with Russia. I mean, the very first dossier report that came out in late June said categorically that Trump had been conspiring 
for five years with the Kremlin. That, of course, turned out to be based on a, a non-existent source, but that wasn't known until many years later. So at one end of the, the extreme, you have, oh my gosh, someone who might become president of the United States is an active Kremlin agent and has been for five years. At the other end of the spectrum is that this is a bunch of garbage and it's being paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC. But we can't report any of that part of the spectrum. We can just report what the findings are, the, the sensational findings. So after the BuzzFeed dump of the dossier, the media then started turning around and saying, all right, what can we say about where this came from? And in short order, the Wall Street Journal identified Steele as the author of the dossier, but they didn't identify Fusion as the firm that had hired him. About a day or two later, the Times first in late morning around 1130 posts what we journalists call an explainer. And it was a story trying to explain the dossier and what it was. And in it, it explicitly said, we can't say who the research firm or the author is because of confidentiality agreements with the New York Times. About eight hours later, the Times posts another longer story now identifying Fusion and Steele, the two sources that eight hours earlier they had said they couldn't disclose because of confidentiality agreements. So this is all in my piece and I had gone to the New York Times many months ago and this was of course one of the questions I had asked them, what, what changed, why did a confidentiality agreement that seemed to exist in the morning disappear by the, by the nighttime. And I should point out that neither Steele nor Fusion thought that, that they had waived their confidentiality. In fact, when the founders of Fusion wrote a book a few years later, they took the times to task for uh, violating what they viewed as a confidentiality agreement. It wasn't until a few weeks before I published the article as sort of a fact-checking exercise, I went back to make sure that I had this correct because I had seen it in real time when it happened. Ironically, I was in Arizona the day this story came out and I bought the print edition of the New York Times. And on page one was the story exposing fusion as the sponsor of the dossier and it then jumped to an inside page and inside that same page was the explainer saying we can't say this because it's a confidentiality agreement so that always stuck in my mind that's pretty interesting on the same page of the same newspaper it's saying two diametrically opposed things so here all these many years later as i'm preparing to publish the piece i went back to try and look this up to see if I was 
remembering it correctly and getting everything straight. And I discovered first on the website of the New York Times that that explainer piece, the one that had said there was a confidentiality agreement, so we can't disclose this, I discovered that that was no longer there. And instead it named Steel and it named Fusion as the parties. Hmm. So I wondered, hmm. So I went to, to, to the Wayback Machine and got the same answer. It had been changed. And then I went to Nexus and found in my first search, yes, it had been changed in Nexus too. So I started to wonder, oh my gosh, am I remembering this wrong? And then I did another search in Nexus and sure enough, I found the piece that still had the confidentiality language in it. And of course I don't, I try to get somebody at the New York Times to f- answer the crucial question is when did this, when did this change happen? Cause there's no explanation in the piece. It's not like, Oh, we said this back then, but that that's no longer true. So now we're saying it, you know, an editor's note or a correction. There's nothing like that. But uh, the people I asked said, well, to do this, we're going to have to leave a trail in the system. And I couldn't find anybody that was prepared to do that. So I don't know when this uh, edit was done and the change was done. But in any event, it, it, it raised, as I point out in the piece, a larger issue about the relationship reporters had with sources and how that played out specifically with the the dossier and and steel. As mentioned earlier, uh, Bob Woodward told you that there should be a reckoning, that there should be introspection uh, in U.S. media about how they covered Russiagate. Uh, if the reaction to your piece from your media colleagues is any guide, I don't think that introspection is happening at least anytime soon because now, you faced uh, a hostile response from some of the journalists who pushed the Russiagate narrative that you're critiquing in your piece, uh, among them David Korn of Mother Jones and Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine. But I want to actually offer a critique uh, from the Russiagate skeptic side, uh, just to point out that <laughs> that that th- those that uh, – I don't think the people who push Russiagate should be have a monopoly on, on being able to uh, criticize here because I have one critique, which is that it's a very uh, it's an issue I've covered extensively, which is, you know, the allegation that Russia hacked the DNC. And to me, a very big revelation in all this and a, and a big and a, a strong example of the media's dereliction of duty was that the Democratic Party contractor that generated the Russian hacking allegation, CrowdStrike, admitted under oath in December 2017, that they don't have concrete evidence that Russian hackers took anything from the server. And when this admission was released finally, nearly three years later in May 2020, it's never been reported. The Times, the Post have never acknowledged that the head of CrowdStrike told Congress that actually we don't have evidence that these alleged Russian hackers actually took anything from the server. And regardless of what really happened there, I think that's an important admission that was made and it's never been reported. And that angle of this story doesn't appear in your piece. You, you focus pretty much exclusively on the, although not entirely, but mostly on the Russian collusion angle. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a fair criticism. I, I left things out that people on polar ends of the issue can take 
and criticize. And, and I was obviously aware of everything you said and debated about whether to put it in the piece. And ultimately it didn't make it into the piece for two reasons. One, the piece was already 25,000 words and a lot for people to chew on. And, but second, and probably more importantly, uh, in my mind, it was an unresolved issue. There, there were certainly questions about whether, in fact, the Russians that did it is, is commonly considered. And as I did point out that the, the criminal case that was brought has never been prosecuted. And so yeah. nobody's been convicted. It remains, you know, unlitigated. And I had hoped that the Durham's investigation would shed light on it and again hope that he would come out and produce something in that regard before I published but that didn't happen and so it's one of the in my mind one of the unanswered and it's an important question as you point out it's an unanswered question that I didn't feel I could I could answer in my reporting. And so it would, it would be going down a road without getting to the end of the road. And so I, there, there are a number of things that when people want to criticize the piece, I can point to that weren't in it that, that run counter to what they're saying. So if, if, if people want to criticize me for being too hard on the, the folks who, who believed in all this then the failure of me of my piece to go down and examine the dnc hack is is an example to them well it could have been even worse so um that, <laughs> another criticism you know, it, yes sir it it, it 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 is it is a mystery and I, you know you make a good point and i was aware of it that the, the media ignored the testimony from from sean henry the the crowd strike executive that that they didn't really have the definitive proof that they were claiming and so that certainly you know merited uh being reported on when it did become public in 2020 and, and it wasn't i mean i should point out that i found this quite interesting in the in the responses that new york times gave me um which is an indication of why I'm pessimistic that they're going to ever address the the issues that were raised in my piece. For for all the years of coverage, they would use the term interference, sometimes the word meddling, to describe what happened in the 2016 election with regards to the actions of, of Russia. I should point out that the word interference is even further than what the intelligence community says, because the intelligence community distinguishes between interference operations and influence operations. Interference operations are tampering with election rolls and equipment and tallies and things like that. And influence operations are, you know, propaganda or information or things meant to try and influence voters, but not interfere in the actual voting process. So even with that distinction not being made, 
and the Times and others using the interference. I was struck that when the Times finally came back after much time on their part, so I have to assume that they carefully crafted their response, their statement to me, which is in the piece, talks about the, the Russian manipulation, that's the word they used, in 2016. So I interpret the word manipulation to go even further than the word interference. And so they seem not to have any second thoughts about things. They actually are even stronger in how they think they want to describe what happened in 2016. One of the odd critiques that I think you've received is that you interviewed Trump for the piece. And I've seen some media voices take issue with that, which I find strange to say the least, given that you're interviewing someone who's at the center of the scandal you're reporting on. What stood out to you from your conversations with Trump about uh, how he viewed the Russia investigation and uh, how it impacted his presidency? Well, I don't know who who's criticized me for interviewing Trump, but I, I doubt that a serious journalist can set about to do a piece in which one of the major characters you, you don't even try to interview. Um, but I guess maybe I'm out of touch with the way journalism is practiced <laughs> these days. But But with regards to Trump, um, and I should say, I I didn't know Trump. I didn't know anybody in the Trump White House. And it was just through some serendipitous networking that I was able to get an interview with him. Um, you know, as, as the piece makes clear, he wasn't even aware of the dossier uh, during the campaign. He did, he did have campaign aides sort of from time to time raise sort of the Russia question with him. But remember, it, it came up in the in the debates. Hillary Clinton, in one of the debates in October, maybe the last one, more or less accused them of being, uh, you know, in bed with Russia. And so it was obviously an issue during the campaign, but I, he told me that he wasn't aware of the dossier per se, and that when Comey used the most salacious allegation in the dossier to brief him that day on January 6th, it was, it was a shock and a surprise. And it's hard to put yourself in his shoes because I'm not <laughs> sure anybody has the size of shoes he wears, but you, you can imagine, you know, being surprised yourself if somebody uh, told you such an accusation involving yourself. So, um, and he did tell me that, that early on in his presidency, those first few weeks, even the weeks before his inauguration and then soon thereafter with the, the time story, he, said he realized he had two jobs and one was to run the country and the other was to deal with the media. And 
I'm not sure he ever fully sort of understood exactly what what the what the the dossier and its implications were. Uh, I, I guess eventually he did, but I think in the beginning, I mean, here's a guy who uh, had never spent a lot of time in Washington and now had a you know, run the most powerful country in America. And he didn't have a lot of qualifications to do that, let alone have to deal with, um, you know, the allegations that were being made to him about Russia. I mean, you can't think really, if you think about it again, the first, the first dossier that was written said that he had been in a conspiracy with, with the Kremlin for five years. Um, that, that it's pretty hard to fathom something more serious to say about anybody, let alone somebody who was a candidate for president and then became president. You conclude your article by pointing out that the Times and the Post and other outlets that pushed Trump, Russia, innuendo, uh, quote, failed to report facts that run counter to the prevailing narrative. And this, you say, uh, marks what you call the erosion of journalistic norms and adds to people's distrust about the media. Can you talk to us more about this? And, you know, coming from your experience as a veteran journalist, three decades with The Times, uh, what this Russiagate episode says to you about the state of the media today and what you would like to see in a perfect world uh, fixed? Well, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm perplexed. Things that when I was at the New York Times were, were axiomatic. I mean, for example, I, I write in the piece about how when the the government dropped the case against the one of the companies in Russia that was supposedly involved in the trolling and meddling in 2016. The Times quoted the prosecution, but they never reached out to the lawyer for the defense, who not only gave interviews to the Post or the Wall Street Journal, but put out a statement. So even if you didn't have the time to pick up the phone and call the attorney you could at least put their statement in the piece and the times didn't either and as a result there are two parties in a case they they wrote what one party had to say and they didn't write what the other party had to say that that that's so axiomatic and built into your dna when i was at the times i i don't understand what goes on these days with reporters who don't feel any obligation to just do the most elementary thing in journalism to, to get comment from one of the two parties in a major case that you had written about a lot and made a big deal of and then it collapses and disappears and you don't find a way to to talk to one of the parties. So I, I'm perplexed. I don't really understand it. And there are other examples in my piece of not reflecting 
you know, parties that are involved in your article, uh, either reaching out for comment or just ignoring it. For example, you know, James Clapper, who had been the director of national intelligence, went on TV a few weeks after he stepped down. He was under Obama. And he said on national TV that as of the time he left there, there wasn't, he wasn't aware of any evidence of collusion. Well, again, it's sort of like the Peter Strzok text. Here's the guy who was the top intelligence official in the government saying on the record that he hadn't seen any evidence. That doesn't mean maybe he didn't find some in the few weeks since he left or whatever, but nonetheless, he's saying it, it's on the record, and yet the New York Times didn't think it was newsworthy. So I don't know how you change that behavior, to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's so built into your DNA when I was there. Uh, I haven't been at the paper in 16 years so or 17 years. I, I don't know what the DNA is like there, but that, that's going to change. That's going to require a pretty significant change in the, the way things are done. And it has to start at the top, I guess. But again, you know, the, the standards, I, I did this in another interview, the, the standards editor at the New York Times, who's supposed to enforce these kind of things, uh, used to be an important person. They'd be on the masthead of the newspaper, even when the masthead was, you know, not very many people. You could count them, you know, on your hands. Uh, today, the masthead for the New York Times has 12 people on it, but the standards editor is not one of the 12. Um, you know, you'll have to ask the New York Times what that means, but uh, uh, I'm really at a loss to understand how some of these practices have evolved into, you know, what I describe in the piece. The article is called The Press Versus the President. It's out now in the Columbia Journalism Review. Jeff Gerth, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it.